Welcome to Answers from the Attic, the podcast where we explore the unasked questions about today's headlines to empower you for the future. I'm your host, Agni Sharma. Let's take a look through the attic. The economy is fluctuating, people are spending less, and companies are really starting to feel the impact. Is this an appropriate time to leverage marketing? And how do big names like Uber and Tesla figure into this equation? Good morning, everyone, and I hope you're staying safe out there. As I say that, I realize that it's become the go-to pleasantry, the greeting of choice, because that's just what's on our minds for the first time in some time we're required to collectively care in order to get back our subjective freedoms all our conversation today remains under the cloud of covid-19 as we can't help but talk about the biggest pause in our lives till date in addition to an inability to squeeze into the last 4 inches of our favorite public transport we've started to notice the butterfly effect of this pandemic as Uncertainty grows amidst blurry timelines. Companies across the board are required to adapt to unprecedented changes, regardless of size, funding, or popularity. Businesses are placed square in the center of attention, with their fate coming into question under a stuttering economy. Speaking of economics, a concept taught early on in most economic classes is scarcity. The idea that there aren't enough resources or sufficient supply to meet overwhelming demand. While the concept has reared its head in the form of the shocking run at cleaning supplies, it has been turned on its head for companies around the world. Aside from our charming overlords, there simply isn't enough demand to meet the existing supply across different industries. Typically, when there's a need to generate demand, companies resort to an age-old remedy: marketing. We've all heard and vaguely understand the term and likely have market research thrown on our resume somewhere but what does that process look like how does it shape around you as a customer broadly it starts with building a persona that roughly resembles who you are segmenting you based on broad characteristics to determine how likely you are to spend your money and finally using that data in trying to convince you to do so with that summary You might have the notion that trying to implement this approach in such a sensitive time seems in bad taste. It could even be seen as exploitative. Dare I say unethical? And unethical can be a death sentence for a business. To put this in perspective, business ethics often presents the concept of corporate responsibility. We hear the mention of words like social and sustainable as reasons why more customers convert. This indicates a trend that was initially written off as trivial that the perceived ethical value of a company can actually drive revenue. But since we established just now that marketing can be a bad look in sensitive times, this begs the question, is it acceptable for a company to instead market how ethical they are? I mean, we see it all the time. We see companies being praised in the news for doing their part, as they rightly should. But it's interesting to note the semantics of headlines. Recently, Tesla is manufacturing ventilators, which will be donated to the in-need medical facilities. Giorgio Armani, Dior, Burberry are repurposing production lines to provide medical gowns and masks. 
Uber Eats announced free delivery on orders from local restaurants. If you haven't caught the trend, these headlines seem to be more weighted toward the company rather than the action. The part of the headline that resonates within us is the company name. We're left with the thought that, hey, look, company X is doing something rather than here's what's being done, which stops us short of asking what could be done. Now, it's up to companies to take responsibility, just like it's up to us to be good neighbors. But this simple turn of phrase gives us the image of an entity going out of their way to perform any action, regardless of how the magnitude of that action compares to their true capacity. Let me highlight a juxtaposition in these headlines. You have automakers and luxury fashion companies altering their production lines to produce medical necessities at no cost to the targeted user. That's a large-scale change that comes close to the full ability of the producer. On the other hand, sticking with our example of Uber delivery, say they waive delivery fees, but in many cases, you still require a minimum order value to avoid extra fees, an order value that's typically higher than what you would have spent, and has service or other fees tacked on as well. And we're not even sure about the distribution, how much of that is for profit or revenue, as opposed to how much is allocated to the delivery partner. Just recently, Uber was exposed in a Business Insider report for failing to uphold a financial promise to impacted drivers. The company made public mention of their intention to help eligible drivers who had been impacted by virus-related measures. Now, eligibility criteria was so strict that they had to be expanded upon protest. And drivers who still met these are not receiving pay. They're quite literally stuck in the semantics. Now, we hear the terms Uber, financial aid to drivers, and that facade is enough to keep us satisfied with their effort and apply the ethical stamp. It's a similar game of semantics with food delivery. Publicizing that delivery is waived is a way of saying support local business, but what they're really saying is, Support it through us. The first part of that statement is enough of an incentive to make people say, yep, ethical move, and show more loyalty to that company without deeper questioning. The thing is that companies able to play their part and continue to function financially understand the positive externalities they can generate, as well as the perception that comes with it. Is there a line we draw when it comes to marketing the ethical stances of companies? Or should they be entitled to limitless leeway as a hero's reward for doing something at all? On the flip side, how can struggling businesses that can't afford altruism at the moment leverage marketing to stay alive while remaining ethical in the eyes of customers? Let's talk to our guest after the break. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we're joined here by Matt Johnson. Matt, thanks for being on. Could you take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Matt Johnson. I'm a professor and researcher at Holt International Business School in San Francisco. I'm also a writer. I host the Pop Neuro blog, which is a consumer neuroscience blog about this intersection between neuroscience and marketing. Uh, and I've just written a book on this topic called Blindsight, which is the mostly hidden ways marketing reshapes our brains. 
could you tell us a bit more about Blindsight and why we should check it out? Yeah, absolutely. So Blindsight is about this massive intersection between neuroscience and marketing. We walk around the world and we see advertisements, we see paid advertising coming up on our, our mobile devices and in social media. And uh, we may want to purchase something later, we may feel differently around later, but there's this incredible interaction that happens at the level of the brain, which we as a consumer don't really understand. And so this book is, is a look under the hood. It is a exploration of us as consumer psychological beings operating within the consumer world. It's an opportunity to understand ourselves better as consumers. So Matt, appreciate you introducing the book. It seems like there's some relevance between what you write about and what we're talking about here today, especially when we think of the coronavirus. We do know businesses are having a bit of a roller coaster ride. So in a time like this where we are sensitive, where do you see marketing from an ethical perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I would say first, one, it completely depends on the company. So from the standpoint of the company, their number one job right now is to survive. They have to remain solvency. They have to maintain a, a healthy balance sheet. And some companies are in a, at a better position than others to be able to, to do that. If you're a company that offers something that can genuinely be used and can genuinely add value to somebody right now, then you are in a position where you can market and, and market efficiently. If you're not, if you're an Airbnb, if you're an Uber right now where you have a, a product or service that either people don't want or people can't use, literally can't use due to regulatory issues and, and save the world right now, uh, then you have to do something very differently to order, in order to accomplish this first goal of surviving. So I think before the marketing conversation can happen, it's, it's a bigger conversation about corporate strategy and, and about maintaining solvency during this time. Um, so if the company is in a position where they have a product or service that can add value and that can be used by customers at this time, I think the, the best strategy really is to try and meet the consumer where they are now. And one of the bona fide rules, one of the bona fide axioms of marketing is, is understanding your consumer. And all of the ideas, all the hypotheses, all the insights that companies had about their consumers prior to the pandemic have now shifted. Uh, people are, are living in a, a very different world and, and having a very different lifestyle and having very different experiences than they were three, four months ago. And in order to, to best market, introduce products, talk about product value, uh, increase adoption rates, increase brand loyalty, all the things that you hope to do as a marketer, you really have to first understand really where the customer is right now. You know, that's an interesting point. Um, this whole idea of consumer engagement, understanding your customer comes first. We're at a point where we focus more on feeling safe and understanding the sense of compassion that we share. We see more companies tapping into that sense of compassion. And where do we draw that line between a company that's reaching out compassionately and a company that's trying to manipulate this in a profit sense? I think really what it comes down to is talk versus action. So it is effectively commodified at this point if you're a company to send out an email saying we're here for you or uh, running a television commercial campaign with, you know, we're in a new normal, we're having new experience, we're here for you. Very sort of, uh, you know, soft messaging. I think anybody can do that. All companies who have the money in their, their marketing budget can roll out something like this. But what not all companies can do is actually make serious investments at potential financial costs to themselves for the greater good right now. So these are things like 
Tesla stopping the manufacturing of cars and moving to ventilators. GM, Ford, 3M moving to ventilators. Fashion brands who have made shirts and blouses and pants their whole lifetime as, as a company are now making medical materials. And so actions are really going to speak louder than words in terms of messaging. This is incredibly commodified. Anybody can do it. And I think, especially now of, of getting emails and seeing commercials like this for a month and a half, two months, uh, I think customers are, are attenuating to that. But it's really the bold actions that, that come at sometimes substantial financial sacrifice on behalf of the company. These are the things that are really going to be remembered by customers and remembered in terms of the company's history. We see people having more screen time now than potentially ever before. Do you think companies should capitalize on this or could they be seen as ethically flawed by trying to make use of this extra access they have to consumers? Yeah, I think one, one interesting trend we were seeing prior to the pandemic is a slightly less time on site. It's sort of this digital backlash. People were worried about privacy issues. People were worried about some of the ethical issues which are, are brought up by some of these companies, especially in an election time. But now all of that is, is out the window. We're seeing a, a surge in, in time on site and, and usage for companies like Facebook and Instagram, where previously we saw a bit of a dip. And, and people are spending more time online, more time on social media than ever before. So certainly if a company is in a position where they can market and they have a product or service which uh, can be valuable to customers, they have no other choice but to market. It, it is effectively internet infrastructure at this point. You can't really have much of a debate if you're a, even a small business on whether to have a social media presence on Instagram or whether to run paid targeted advertising on a platform like Instagram or Facebook. It's a huge opportunity cost if you don't, especially now. So it's an interesting time in terms of looking at the ethics of, of social media, looking at the ethics of some of these companies, but in terms of, of the sure survival of these companies, if you're in a position where you do have a product or service that can be marketed, there really is almost no other way but to get your word out than via these systems. Now, in your perspective and experience, what has been an ethical yardstick? Is there a baseline of ethics that you've seen in marketing before? And is that paradigm severely shifting now in light of this pandemic? This is sort of a, a very humbling time for uh, the importance of ethics in a brand. So. Um, as we spoke about before, uh, people were not so happy with Facebook. We were not so happy with Instagram. We started to see uh, hits to that in terms of usage rates and time on site. But all of this goes out the window when you really need these services. Same goes for Amazon. People will complain about Amazon, complain about what they're doing to the environment, how they treat the workers, et cetera, et cetera. But people will complain about this, but consumer activism uh, really only goes so far. People will talk about the boycott of these companies, but nobody's willing to go on a hunger strike for them. No one's going to not eat and, and not have essential goods delivered to them because they don't like how Jeff Bezos and team runs Amazon. And, and same goes for, for large tech companies as well. So the, the ethics of a brand matters only insofar as it can matter, only insofar as, as consumers have a reasonable choice about these things. So I think that uh, poses uh, some really interesting questions and challenges as we move forward. And I think especially poses some, some challenges to regulators because it, it really is up to regulators to, to maintain consumer choice within an industry and, and prevent these type of monopolies from taking place. Now, Matt, putting yourself in the hot seat, so to speak, 
if you were in the position of a marketer at one of these companies, what would be your biggest concerns around customer outreach and acquisition? Yeah, it's a good question. So if, if I have a company and we have a product or service that, that can add value and, and can be used right now, I think you're, you're in a difficult situation. So you need to get the word out. You need to advertise. One, you're, you're competing with all the other companies that are doing these things and you're, you're competing with similar messages. So uh, you always need to be able to stand out in a crowd. Ordinarily, you can differentiate by being a bit strange, by being a little bit weird, by sort of going against the grain. Now there's, there's an increased potential cost to that because you don't want to come off as, as tone deaf or insensitive or out of line with your brand perception. So I think really the main challenge is to be as bold and as sort of against the grain as, as possible while still maintaining your and, and being in line with brand perception and, and not alienating your customers as well. And I guess the question this all comes down to is what are the nuances in this traditional marketing life cycle or this marketing realm that you see changing going forward? How do we adapt for a completely uncertain future? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think one thing we're, we're seeing now is companies reaching out to their existing customers more and more. That certainly they're in the business of running acquisition campaigns and, and trying to introduce new customers to their products. But a lot of what we're seeing is really trying to hold on to their current customers. And we're seeing creative ways of going about that. The one example that comes to mind here is the Pittsburgh Penguins, the hockey team. Players can't play, NHL, all major sports in America and most other places in the world are canceled right now. So what they're doing, and this was actually started by the players themselves, is the actual players, the stars, getting paid millions of dollars a year, are actually calling individual fans and they're checking up on them and they're seeing how they're doing, seeing if they need anything, seeing, you know, talking about their favorite, you know, Pittsburgh Penguin moments. And just imagine that if you're a lifelong Pittsburgh Penguin fan, you're out of a job, you're, you're suffering economic hardship, and you get a call from your favorite player who you had as you know, a poster on your wall you know, when you were a kid. It, it's an incredible experience for those existing customers. So uh, it, it's more difficult than ever to reach out to new customers, but I think this presents a unique opportunity to, to really embolden the connection with existing customers. Absolutely. Like you said, customer is king at the end of the day. Do you see this idea of building loyalty working better in the Pittsburgh Penguin example with more sentimental or emotional measures such as phone calls, emails, messages in comparison to perhaps financial reward? You could send someone a discount or like Uber does free delivery. How do you see those two aspects of building customer loyalty measure up against each other? So this really gets at the, the two primary ways which companies try and garner loyalty within their customer base. So there is transactional loyalty, which is this idea of we're going to give you something and the implicit assumption is you're going to give us something back in terms of loyalty or you're going to use the product again or tell somebody about it. And uh, this is great in the short term, but there's a few problems with it. So one, it doesn't really build a sense of warmth between customer and a company. It's very transactional. It's very uh, simply reciprocal. And that's not the type of dynamic that people appreciate in their personal relationships, nor in the relationships with a brand. And there's lots of research showing that these are effectively the same thing. We have one system for orienting in the social world that applies to people as well as to brands. Uh, the second way of going about this is a more transformational type of brand loyalty. And this is when 
the consumers really come to see the brand as a person. They really see this brand personality and they see this brand personality to exude warmth and confidence. Uh, warmth can really be conveyed in, in an expression of their investment in the well-being of their customers. And so this is much more difficult. It doesn't scale nearly as well. You can send all of your customers a, you know, here's $10 off a free ride. You can send all of your customers instantaneously, instantaneously on MailChimp, but calling customers, checking in on them, knowing your customers on a first name basis, like Zappos has done, like the Pittsburgh Penguins have done, like Panera Breads did during uh, certain difficult circumstances that their customers faced. These don't scale well, but they do yield incredible benefit in terms of really long-term, endearing, transformational brand loyalty. Now, Matt, as we mentioned earlier, you have just written a book about the consumer experience and how that works at a neurological level. What do we as consumers, as well as marketers, brands, companies, need to know about the brain in this new world we see going forward? I mean, I think now more than ever, Marketers and brands need to understand their consumers. They need to understand consumers in, in terms of a new set of rules, a new framework. Um, and so there's no better place to start for developing this than understanding the general principles of the brain, how the brain takes information, how we interpret it, how we learn from our experiences, how we build social connections, uh, and how all of this operates and how all of this is influenced by the consumer world. So this is really what the core of the book is about, is, is really deeply understanding this consumer experience, really deeply understanding the processing of the brain. If you look at each of our major mental faculties, there, there's really nothing that isn't at some point influenced by marketing. We see, we look at vision and perception, we see and we're exposed to advertisements at a, at a sensory level. We learn from these, we build associations with brands, we make decisions ultimately about brands and this way on our decision-making apparatus in different ways. We build connections, we engage in multiple behaviors and develop habits, and then all of this falls within the purview of consumer neuroscience. So I would, as a general recommendation, really trying to deeply understand the consumer experience through the perspective of neuroscience. Finally, Matt, where can we access your book, Blindsight? Glad you asked that, Agnes. So this can be accessed on our website at popneuro.com. You can also search for it on Amazon, Blindsight, the mostly hidden ways marketing reshapes our brains. Matt Johnson, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. To everyone who tuned in today, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Answers from the Attic is a privately run podcast. The theme music created by Kevin McLeod and purchased from the Incompetech website. Sound effects from zapsplash.com. Check the link in description for the website information.